Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. Hoping we find you all in good form and a family that are certainly waking up and I imagine still in shock has got to be that extended family living in the Knoll area of County Dublin. This is the family syndicate. Their names seem to be widely known in the area who have won the 175.4 million euro jackpot. At this stage yesterday, we were still speculating as to what part of the country the winning ticket had been sold and there was rumours abounding all over social media. In fairness, early rumours did go out that the ticket had been sold in the Knoll area but then we were getting calls in to say a rumour had gone out that the ticket had been sold in the Passage West area and we were really hopeful that there might be a Cork win but then of course as we had somebody on from the National Lottery yesterday who at that stage they knew because the family had made contact with them but it was around 12 o'clock when the National Lottery finally confirmed that the ticket had been sold in this little supermarket in the Knoll in North County Dublin and then it turns out in that area the family's name was well known and everybody was talking about the family. The family had been named in a number of uh, social media posts as well. So it doesn't look like this family are going to remain anonymous. I imagine they are going to go very public and we will get to see their faces. But they sound like an absolutely fabulous family. Any of you saw any of the news reports yesterday and all of the newspapers today again picking up on it and anyone who knows this family all talk about what a close-knit family they are, they are and they sound like a kind of a salt of the earth family and you sort of think oh I'm so glad a family like that has won this incredible amount of money. They say as a family they're just getting used to the, the idea they're obviously overjoyed. One family spokesman He's married to one of the syndicate. The syndicate appears to be a group of siblings as to how many. Some are saying there's six brothers and sisters. I've heard as many as nine brothers and sisters. But they all, as a syndicate, each of the siblings are involved in this. And they obviously, I don't know how long they've been playing the lotto or how much they put into it. But, you know, obviously one of the family members goes off and does it uh, every week. And then one of their 
Partners uh, was talking yesterday saying it's going to take quite some time for everybody to get their heads around and just to organise themselves. They, he admitted though, we're a very close family. We meet every week. We take holidays together every year. He said it's a dream come true for us, but we don't want this to change our lives. Bless their hearts. It certainly will change their lives. But, you know, let's look at the positive. It can change their lives in a very, very positive way. It doesn't have to be uh, negative for them. And they are planning and sharing the money between their children and their grandchildren and they've even said they're going to share it with their extended uh, family members. Now one of the members of the syndicate realised they had won. She had been listening to media reports that there'd been a win in Ireland on Tuesday night but she only managed to catch the last three numbers so she went online and decided I'll just check our numbers and see and lo and behold she then discovered that they had won 17.4 million and it very quickly came out that there was only one winner so it wasn't a case of oh god we have the numbers but we might be sharing it with a lot of other people across Europe so she very quickly realised we as a family syndicate have won 175.4 million euro she then started contacting the other members of the family she had a bit of convincing to do because you can imagine there was a lot of calls and a lot of people you know jokingly saying to other people oh I've won the lotto or if you're in a syndicate together oh we've won the lotto So some of the family members thought she was joking. So it took some time for her to persuade the family, no, we actually have won. And I loved the fact that she then put the winning ticket into an Argos catalogue and put the Argos catalogue under the mattress, you know the size of the Argos catalogue, and then didn't sleep a wink for the night. I'm sure very few of the family members slept very well on uh, Tuesday night. And then yesterday morning, it was more than a phone call actually to the National Lottery. Some of the family got in a car drove to Dublin, went to the, met somebody from the National Lottery and handed over the ticket. I mean, they didn't want the responsibility of leaving the ticket in an Argos catalogue under somebody's mattress. So they got the ticket to the National Lottery. Now, of course, the, they weren't able to pick up a cheque because the cheque wasn't there because the National Lottery now have to make arrangements with all of the other National Lotteries across all of Europe because it was the Euro millions that they won. And it takes anything from a week to 10 days, I think, to collect all the money from all of the different lotteries across uh, Europe. So it'll be a week or two before they'll be able to officially collect the money. But that'll give them time to let it all settle in, settle down and just let them decide what, what they're going to have to do, but you know, what, what they'll do with it. As I say, they're hoping that it won't dramatically change their lives. Most of the members of the family are retired. So they're looking, in for, they're looking forward to enjoying their retirement. They're a well-known family in the Nall area. They've been in the area for the last uh, two uh, generations. So, And there was huge excitement. You could see that in Nall you, the, because the, all of the television cameras and a lot of the media turned up to O'Reilly's Daybreak, the shop that sold the, the tickets. And what an exciting day for them as well. And the owner there, the poor old owner there, when he got the call, he said he also had a premonition that he was going to win or that he'd sell a winning ticket ticket. But he said when he got the news he ended up, God helped him uh, going to the bathroom and he actually got sick with the shock of the whole thing. He actually vomited. The shop itself gets €25,000 for selling the winning ticket so they've had a little bit of a win as well. So all we can do is wish that family in the Nall the very best of luck with their money and we hope that it brings uh, nothing but good health and good happiness uh, to them all. 1850 333 103 coming up on the programme today. 
a story broke yesterday in um, the journal.ie and it was one of those stories you kind of read and sort of had to read a second time and says, this can't be real. This can't be for real. And it's to do with the Irish Coast Guard and a directive that has gone around to all of the Irish Coast Guard members to say that when you're out on a call, you're to stop using your sirens and your flashing blue lights. When you get to the scene of the call, of the call out, you can turn on your siren and your flashing blue lights. Now, why you would want to be turning it on when you're at the scene, I don't know. But on the way to it, no, you can't use the siren and the flashing blue lights. And the siren and the flashing blue lights are used, what? To tell all of us other road users that here are the emergency services. They're either in front of us or they're behind us. Can you please pull in? They are trying to get to an emergency and an emergency with the flashing blue lights on, they're trying to save somebody's life. So we immediately pull in when, you know, you're driving along, particularly when you see it behind you and you see it in your rear view mirror. You'll normally see the flashing blue lights before you'll actually hear the siren and we all pull in uh, straight away. So now they've been told what they get stuck in traffic. Can they toot their horn and we'll hopefully know that it's the Irish Coast Guard and they're not allowed to turn on their siren and pull in for them. It's not making any sense at all to me. And some of the commentary I was reading online yesterday saying much the same thing, saying, is this a joke? Is this for real? Is it April Fool's Day? Somebody was asking it just... So we're trying to get to the bottom of it and and I'm hoping that by enough media highlighting this story, changes will happen and whoever issued the directive will come back and say ah there's a misunderstanding here of course if you're going out to a call where you're hoping and trying to save somebody's life and it is the Irish Coast Guard service you know they go out to save lives of course you're allowed to turn on your siren and your blue flashing uh, lights we'll hear a call to end direct provision centres now the direct provision system is whereby asylum seekers come into this country go into direct provision centres there's a number of them dotted all over the country and to me the biggest problem with direct provision is the length of time people end up staying in in the centres and that's got to do with our asylum process and how we process the status that when asylum seekers look to see can they remain in the country it just seems to take too long now I know the criticism of that is that there's an appeal system and we allow people to appeal too many times and that doesn't happen in other uh, countries. But in the meantime, we have people locked in to this system. And unless you've got inside one of these centres, which very few people have, and spoken to the people about what, what life is like, it can be really, really difficult. And I always think and worry about families that come from war-torn situations, families that have witnessed horrific events, events that nobody should witness in their lifetime. And we, they come here in the hope of getting some kind of a normal life, mainly in, in, in the main until their own country, whatever's going on in their own country settles down and they can go home. The majority of asylum seekers will tell you they don't want to stay in the country where they seek asylum. They just want to seek asylum to help them be safe for a while, but they ultimately want to go home. Uh, and then we put them into this system, which at times can exacerbate what they have gone through if there isn't the help there that they need. I mean, many many will have been suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, and then we're housing them in what sounds at times almost like a prison uh, system. So we're going to hear a call from one local person who feels enough is enough. We need to end the way we operate direct provision. Now, I don't know if she's the solution to what we can put in place uh, instead. We're also hearing about a study which is showing how the Irish social welfare 
system and the payments that we give out are actually helping to prop up low pay practices by some uh, employers. Now, I don't know if employers deliberately are paying low, knowing that their worker will be able to then apply for if they only part time hours, they can get their job seekers payment or if they're in a family situation and they're working longer hours, well, they can get a family income uh, supplement. But without that buffer zone, we would have families living in an awful lot more poverty. Well, we already have a lot of families in poverty or on the brink of our poverty, but it's all to do with the working poor what needs to be done about that. We'll look at this report uh, today. Member for Encarthy Shea will join us for this week's uh, Crime File and then Jane Pickett in the final hour of the programme will answer all of your gardening not your gardening questions, you'll answer your pet questions and you can get your pet questions in. So Bernie wa- is in Cantark and she contacted the programme this morning because she was on the Killarney to Bantir train yesterday when she came across a purse. Now she handed the purse in to the officer on the train and the officer on the train said he would contact Rathmore train service train station and they would return it to the person who owns it. Bernie and Kent, our context this morning said she'd love to know that the person got the, that the person whose purse she found that it was returned and that the lady got it back. She said the lady who owned the purse was from Cullen. So if that rings the bell with anyone, if anyone was on the Killarney to Bantir train, lost a purse, or you heard of somebody from the Cullen area who lost a purse and then was delighted to get reunited with it, we have Bernie in Canturk's details. We just, she just wants to make sure that she got the purse back and that uh, it was found safe and sound. And well done, Bernie, uh, for your honesty. And a listener was on about something that we will do something on this later on on the programme because I know our own Fiona Corcoran was in the Cork Circuit Criminal Court yesterday. This is a shocking, shocking case. It was the assault of a man on the Grand Parade in the city centre who was seriously beaten up. Um, this One of our listeners was saying just an awful uh, case. But one of our listeners is complaining because the sentence that was handed down is simply not tough, tough enough. One of the guys got eight years and the other got uh, six. Listener wants to know who is monitoring the CCTV in the city centre these days. Surely somebody would have seen that man crawling down the South Mall towards the Garda station. At the end of the day, this is in the heart of Cork City and it was a shocking case and the man in question, 45-year-old man, just, you know, heading home in the early hours of the morning and gets set upon by these two gurriers. I mean, he ended up in quite a state. I mean, he his jaw was broken. He was stabbed twice. He was kicked in the head uh, while he was on the ground. I mean, he was quite seriously assaulted and uh, attacked and two before the courts uh, yesterday and yeah an eight year sentence with the last two suspended that was imposed on a guy called Jamie Crowley from uh, Nutley Road in Maham and he was also found guilty of robbing 100 euro from the Mr O'Driscoll the gentleman who was attacked and then there was a second his accomplice was a Peter Carroll a 21 year old from Carablon in Mayfield no previous convictions he pleaded because the first guy actually had previous convictions the second guy didn't and he got um, a sentence of five years with the last two uh, suspended and then they'll get off they'll get out quicker than that because of good behaviour and all of that after what they did to this man was just shocking as I say our Fiona was in court yesterday so we'll talk more we'll highlight that case in more detail later on on the programme but let's take a break and let's come back and chat about the Irish Coast Guards being told to stop flashing their blue lights 1850 333 103 
Laura Gelga, RC103. Roguk Anagiri, Aaron Oxila is Veha, Devi Ul, Sibli Nedig Octa Shocked. Dalshi Inis, in A Unvulin, Kunta Kirki. Imreen Anna Kamogyukt, Marlon Cooley. August Talgok, Sais Gradum Vinta Makake. Vug Anagiri, Kara Gradum Alster. August Talben Crave Naharan Vuta Ake. Gavilas a kuig, Gavilas a shay, Gavilas a nay, Ox Gavilas a cardi. Viana in a captainer, Erin Kirky, nor Vug sheet, Crave Kumartis Ginsher, Naharan Sikamogiacht, Savlin Gavilas a cardig. In a hantishin is Booter eat the tree, Van Clubbin and a heron, either Gavilas a tree dig, Ox Gavilas a shay dig. Vector Anagaminic, Erin Telefish Ladani, Er Clarica Arnos, Ireland's fittest family. August Dancing with the Stars. Gone ain ago is Inspiradi Anna, the Colini Oganatira. La Blora Guelga is Misha Donica Olanchig, Oguelskult Mostavish Maana. CKD Asa 3 Kirkig. This is the Court Today replay on C103. According to a report on the journal.ie, the Irish Coast Guard staff have been told they are no longer permitted to use blue lights and sirens on vehicles when responding to a call. Councillor John O'Sullivan joins me with his uh, concerns around this uh, story and this directive. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Patricia. It seems when I when I read the article, and thank you, you were the first to alert us to this on the journal.ie, you kind of read it and thought this is a little bit unbelievable. Is this, is this for real? The Irish Coast Guard vehicles are fitted with blue lights. They're fitted with sirens. Why? What? Have you any understanding as to why members have been told not to use them? No, and I must say, when I read this, it was disbelief. <laughs> I read it, was, and I haven't been able to, to talk to any of the Coast Guard staff since. But it, it's it defies belief, in, in, in my opinion, that that uh, you have an emergency situation. You have volunteers that are volunteering their own time, taking away from their own businesses, their own jobs, to respond to that, and that that this has been taken away from them. And I, I think I think it's bureaucracy and daft here, because it's quite clear that that these these responders don't have to be travelling at nineteen hundred miles an hour. The the basis of this was to sound the alarm and put on the blue light so that areas could be cleared to get to get access to where where the emergency is taking place. Particularly around the coast here, down here in Barrow or down here in Cottonshire, and anywhere around the coast, the entrances to to beaches are quite narrow, mm. and it would take some time to get them cleared. And the the siren and the light, people hearing that would automatically say something wrong. We need we need to make way for this, and it could make all, the difference between a person in difficulty in the water or a cliff top or whatever. It could make the difference. They getting to them in time or not, and I I just think. In my opinion, the interpretation from what I see from the journal article, it, it, it was it was in it that 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 they weren't allowed to to speed, but they were allowed to plan the CERN and the the blue light in order to clear the way. And the the reason being given according to this article is that they're not trained for, for high speeds. High speeds wouldn't be the issue, and and most of the car outs for for the volunteers. We're back again to health and safety and health and training. I, I, I t- you see, I, I'm getting very exasperated that people that are not close to where the, the service is being delivered are making decisions behind 
big desks looking at insurance costs and everything else and not realising what the requirement is on the ground. And it, I, 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 it's, it's exacerbating across across the board, And but this, this is just one more example of it, where we have people out there prepared to give their time, prepared to train, to, to respond to incidents, accidents and emergencies, and now that they're, they're, it's like tying their two hands behind their back, in my, in my view. And the, the, the other issue is that if, if it's going to be rolled out to volunteers, here in West Cork, we have the, the, the West Cork uh, Rapid Response. Yeah. That's a voluntary effort. Are they going to be, are, are they going to be implicated in this if this is distilled down all the way? I, I think the article says here that, that this was a voluntary code that was entered into and, and the, the Road Safety Authority approved it. And here, are we now going to say that because people entered into a voluntary code to try to improve themselves and have better standards, that the, the response to that now from higher up is that, that they remove the, the capacity to, to deliver? I, I'm just, yeah. I, I'm gobsmacked. I, I'm, I'm angry. I'm cross. And in one sense, maybe I'm, I'm not overly surprised, but I, I think common sense has gone out the window here completely. And like I, I've spoken to some of these volunteers who have great elation when when they have a successful outcome, mm. but when when the the the, res, the outcome of of an emergency is not successful, it it has an effect on those volunteers. But just can you imagine that in response to this, a volunteer feels that there was not a good outcome because they were they delayed get there in time. Yeah, and I, I know because the volunteers themselves will say, you know, one of the toughest things for them is when they get the call, getting to the That's unit right. so that they can get in, get into the vehicle and then get to the scene. And and, and obviously, when they're getting to uh, to get into the Irish Coast Guard uh, vehicle, they don't have flashing blue lights and all of that. But at least they know that when they get into their uh, emergency response That's vehicle, right. if they need to put on the blue lights, That's if right. they need to put on the sirens, uh, they can. And they've never been permitted to high speeds they've never been permitted to break red lights which they've never done it just is it's the the lights and the sirens are used to alert the other roads road users and to clear the way for them that's right and to to make way other people at a beach or whatever location of an incident that the way would be clear that they get automatic or quick quicker access because as you know in emergencies minutes can be can be vital. Yeah, the difference and, between life and death. Yeah, but I mean, like, the, the, I, I can't interpret the, the thought process that would that would do this to volunteers who are out there giving their time, wanting to make a contribution, wanting to give back up to people in, in the case of an emergency, and that, that they're being thwarted in, in, in doing that. I just can't understand that mindset. And then I read somewhere in in the in this article that okay, well they're not allowed to use it when they're going to the call, but once they get to the call, when they're parked up, then no problem. Turn on your blue lights and your sirens. But sure, I mean the, the difference in that is if if with say a mile or a mile and a half of where the incident is, if the siren goes on, the road is cleared. If you can't do it until you come to a stop, I mean you're going to you're going to lose another five or ten minutes. Yeah, the, the, the outcome it may be okay, but it, it could be the cause of somebody losing their life. 
And I, in all the years that I've been doing uh, this radio programme, we hear a lot of complaints from motorists and cyclists and pedestrians. I have never once had a complaint from somebody who said, oh, I was out driving on Sunday and I had to pull in to make way for the emergency services because the blue light was flashing. I've never heard anybody complain. You do it instantly. You do, but we we never know what hour of the day or night or month that we might need it ourselves. And wouldn't we want other people to do it for, for ourselves? I mean, it, it, it defies belief. I mean, you're, you're actually right. You'd think it was Fool's Day. You'd think it was Waterford Whispers. Yeah. When I looked at a, re- a reputable journal putting up a report like this, that, that's the, I, I, just, I just can't understand the logic of it. whoever even would, would, would send out the directive, to be honest with you. Because, like, I, I, I've, seen, I've seen these people operate. They don't put their own selves in danger. They're out there to save lives, not to, not to cause destruction. They're out there volunteering to help people and they're being restricted. I I just I'm gobsmacked to be honest that, that, that's where I am. With yeah and of course let's bear in mind it is the Irish Coast Guard Service they're responsible for maritime emergencies you are probably right that this decision was made by a pen pusher in an office in Dublin who's never been anywhere near Well you see that I, like, I, the way I see decisions being made at this stage there's a, a number of people from uh, at, at high levels come around the table to discuss this and somebody puts a problem on the table and if there's nobody there to highlight what the actual effects are on the ground. The practicalities. The practicalities of it. A decision gets made and, and to, to the people on, on, the, on the front line have to, take, have to take the brunt of it then. They, they can't get to a scene. They, they, have to take, they, they have to take the effects of whatever that directive is and you know, most of them, and they try to send the thing up through the system, but it, it gets diluted as, as it goes up through the system. Okay, and it's worth point, pointing out that for last year in 2018, the Irish Coast Guard volunteer units they conducted 1,100 missions and they saved more than 400 lives. Well, they, uh, they, 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 they are, saved they are lives. Absolutely unbelievable group right around our coast in every community, and they're there for, for whatever emergency is called. Maritime or even Cliff Top or whatever, uh, you know, where self harm, they, they liaise with Gardy, the Gardy are, are calling them regularly. And to impose this kind of, of a restriction on them, I, I find it unbelievable anyway. Anna makes the point ice cream vans can blare out loud music to alert children that they're selling products that are that are not very good for the kids yet they're stopping the Coast Guard and Eddie said the rubbish trucks tipper trucks and some vans um, that have flashing blue beacons on uh, you when they're, even when they're not collecting rubbish they leave their flashing blue lights on even in the daytime if you come up the Mallow Road any morning you can be blinded behind some of these uh, trucks are they going to enforce it for those? But, under, under health and safety, or under the road, the road traffic requirements, a big truck now, if it's reversing, must have a siren on, and it's on the road. Is that? Oh, I didn't realise that. They must have a backing siren to to alert people that they're reversing. It's just it's you crazy. Know, I mean, it, 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 this, this is disjointed thinking completely in my view. Okay, I'm just hoping that if this gets enough media publicity, somebody, well, they, they, they'll come back and say, oh, that's a misunderstood and it's yes. been, uh, and then they'll, because they'll realise, oh, oops, we got this wrong and somebody yes. somewhere will say, oh, you're misinterpreting the directive. We didn't mean that. That's well, what if, I'm hoping will happen. we can contribute anything to doing that this morning, I think we'll have a great okay. 10 minutes work done. All right, listen, All right. have a good day, John. Thank thanks you for that and thanks, thanks uh, for joining us. That is uh, West Cork-based uh, councillor John uh, O'Sullivan on what is an incredible
terrible story to, for the Irish Coast Guard, their staff and the volunteers to be told they can no longer use their blue lights and sirens. A member of the Social Democrats in West Cork is calling on the government to end the system of direct provision, which she says is broken and the only way to fix it is to end it completely. Evie Nevin from, uh, Cl- from Clannacilty uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Evie. Good morning. Uh, You're welcome to the programme. Now, everybody knows about the concept of direct provision, but have never been inside one of these centres. You've been spending time with asylum seekers. What are you hearing, uh, Evie, from them about conditions and what life is like for them in a direct provision centre? Um, They're telling me that um, it's inhumane, that they're infantilised, that mental health issues are rampant. Uh, depression is a, is a huge issue, uh, especially because the majority can't work or access education. So they're spending their days pretty much in their rooms, isolated, um, not able to do anything with their days. You know, um, that children, they have nowhere really safe to play um, and they can't invite friends over when they're going to, from their school. Um, and it's, the whole thing is just, it's very isolating. It's very upsetting to, to hear these stories, especially from the children. Um, the, the whole the whole system, it's just, it's not working. Um, and they really want just to be able to have that right to integrate and to live just like anybody else. And is it the length of time spent in these centres that is one of the real problems? Some people are in them for many, many years. That's correct. I mean, the average waiting time for an interview for the interview is nineteen months, and then waiting decision. Uh, the average time is almost two years. But then we have people who are in direct provision five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. You know, um, so the the applications process and the and the decision making process is is very long. Um, you know, delays could be reduced by streamlining the application procedure, more resources given to the officers in charge and, you know, better legal advice um, so that people can be recognised as refugees uh, much faster. And isn't there a very complicated appeal system as well that just adds to the length of time? Absolutely. It takes a very, very long time. And, and in that in that time, again, you're you're stuck in, in direct provision and, again, not able to work or access, access education. The education issue um, is particularly... Um, Worrisome because um, up until recently people could access, you know, further education, um, and now that's been taken away. So it's it's really been a hard time for people living in asylum uh, uh, centres. And uh, if you have children who arrived uh, very young, they're growing up knowing nothing else except life that's in a dream. Exactly, that's exactly it. It's all they've ever known, and their rights. Um, you know, aren't the same as any other child um, in the country. You know, like I said, there's no real kind of place for them to to go and play. They don't have their own rooms. You know, parents and children have to share bedrooms, Um, even teenagers having to share rooms with their their parents, Um, you know, can't have friends over, um, you know, spaces for homework and things like that. Um, And, of course, then with illnesses, you know, they spread like wildfire when you're living in close proximity like that. And, um, you know, there's been cases of malnutrition, uh, food, the 
meals that are served can be, you know, very fatty and self-catering options are far and few between and they seem to be becoming more reduced um, as time goes on as well. So you eat what you get? Essentially. Now, the lodge in in Clonakilty, um, they are able to go, the the residents are able to go and cook for themselves in the kitchen. But that is very much a minority situation. Yeah, the, the majority, you, you just, you're, you're, you're giving your meals every day and, and that's well, it. That's exactly and then for, and for some, for some, Evie, even when they're granted refugee status, they end up having to remain in the direct provision centre. Absolutely. We have 700, um, I believe 700 people or 700 families that are stuck in direct provision because there is nowhere for them to go because of the housing crisis. So, there, you know, there's a lot of um, talk recently about immigrants getting first preference or getting priority to social housing, which is just not the case at all. And, Evie, you know the argument, and I'm waiting, uh, if John Paul hasn't already received a call, I'm waiting for texts or WhatsApps to come in saying, we need to look after our own, you know, we can't, we don't have enough money. That constant argument that you, you've heard it lots of times. Oh, yeah, absolutely, but... My in my uh, opinion, there is absolutely no reason why we can't look after all the vulnerable people in this country. Um, we can take care of both our own citizens who are, you know, stuck in emergency accommodation or, or homeless, and we can look after people who are living in direct provision. It doesn't have to be one or the other, in my opinion. Um, you know, we have. Reports are showing there's 200,000 empty houses across the country. 11,000 of those are in Cork Southwest alone. There is housing available for everyone. There is room for everyone. But it's up to our government to, to make sure that all these houses and dwellings that are sitting there idle for years and years and years and, you know, go to people who, are, who badly need them. What would you put in re- to replace direct provision? Um, well... What would I say, first of all, is to make it more humane um, in the sense that um, while people are there. I mean, direct provision was only supposed to be a six-month thing um, while people were waiting for their decision. That's what it was Um, designed for. Yeah, absolutely. And and that happens in a lot of other European countries. And they wouldn't. I mean, it would be totally unheard of in other European countries um, for people to be stuck in direct provision for that long. Um, like, for example, in Scotland, there is something called the New Scots tra- Strategy, um, where asylum seekers, they are integrated from day one, um, and not just when the decision has been granted, uh, allowing them to stay. Uh, this is done by allowing them to pursue their ambitions, you know, through education and, and employment. And that's something that would definitely be able to um, make things a whole lot better for people in direct provision. Um, another thing as well is that while people are transitioning from um, direct provision into, you know, everyday life, that there needs to be something there for them, um, maybe housing-wise, uh, while they're kind of getting back up on their feet because they have their papers, but nothing's really changing for people and there's, a lot of them are still living on the €21 Euro a week and, and it's difficult for them to get HAP. Um, with the current housing crisis because obviously HAP has a cap so a lot of houses are the rent is above that so the whole situation is just um, it needs an overhaul and it needs to be um, streamlined and it needs to be done with people 
uh, from direct provision, they need to be involved. And let's be let's be honest, uh, this isn't a cheap system. I mean, I was when I knew you were coming on today, I was looking up some of the figures yesterday evening. Uh, I mean, about 50 million a year is it what is what it costs. And they actually reckon this year it's that figure of 50 million is even going to be higher for 2019. And it's, you know, they're paying private firms to operate these direct provision centres. So they are putting money into it. Absolutely, and there's no reason why that money can't be perhaps given to um, our county councils across the country and give them more responsibility um, and integrate um, people with indirect provision into their housing policies. And you've been working with and talking with the ones I'm assuming in the, in the Clonakilty uh, area, um, uh, Evie. There's been arson attacks at some centres, particularly some centres uh, up the country. Does that make asylum seekers nervous? I, I think very much so um, that there is this kind of feeling and unrest about, um, you know, what's going to happen. And, of course, um, you know, which, like the fact that the asylum centres are very much uh, overcrowded as well. And there's children living there and people are very, very worried. Um, now, in Clon, we're very lucky that we have such uh, amazing group of uh, activists and volunteers that do help people in direct provision and a lot of people are very sympathetic to the fact that they are stuck up there um, living in uh, less than ideal um, accommodations. So thank God for volunteers working with them and, and, and helping them. Absolutely and it is down to all these wonderful volunteers who have been working tirelessly um, for a number of years. There's kind of nobody really there, official and um, to help people in direct region, like I said, to transition into everyday life once they get their papers and they don't know where to go or what to do and there's kind of nobody there to guide them um, so they can start their new lives. OK, you paint a gloomy picture of what life is like for sure. Uh, Evie, we leave it there. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks uh, for joining us. That is uh, Evie Nevin, who's a member of the Social Democrats in West Cork with a call to end direct provision. Uh, the system, she says, is not working. It's broken. Your thoughts welcomed on that. 1850 Is it is it money? There Are the government not getting value for money when you look at 50 million is what it cost to house asylum seekers last year? Could that money be better spent? And by having it better spent, the people in direct provision uh, would be they feel would be treated uh, better. Uh, I can see some of your calls and comments coming in. Keep those coming in to us, uh, please, and we'll bring them to you after news at 11. Also, after, after news at 11, looking at a report showing that social welfare payments, the likes of your family income supplement, job seekers allowance, job seekers benefit, is actually propping up low paid practices by some employers. We'll discuss that in the next hour. Free money. Grab your share of five grand with C103 Cash Track. Every morning at 8.15, Simon will reveal the C103 Superstar of the Day. Then, stay listening for two tracks back-to-back from that artist. When they play, be caller 50 to win your share of €5,000. C103 Cash Tracks. With Cavanaugh's, the new name for Ford and Mallow. For new and used car sales, visit Cavanaugh's.com. On the home of Cork's greatest hits. C103. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. 
some of your commentary coming in reacting to our piece about the Irish Irish Coast Guard staff and volunteers have been told no longer allowed to use the blue lights and the sirens and the fear is from the volunteers that they say there could be potential delays that uh, could cause the difference between life and death when they are responding to an incident. Sandy says, Patricia, do you realise a newly qualified member of Angarda Shia Kona cannot use flashing lights and sirens in an emergency without undergoing further training? This came to light with the shooting in Dublin, the shooting in the Dublin Hotel uh, due to the Kinahan Hutch gang feud when that erupted and that story of course was all back in the news uh, yesterday an unarmed Garda was sent to the crime scene but he couldn't use sirens or lights to get there because he didn't have the necessary qualification it's just a flavour of the stupidity in high places in response to a shooting uh, crime says uh, Sandy and in fairness for years the representative organisation for Angarda Siakona have been raising this particular issue and they've been raised raising the issue of the restricted use of the blue lights and sirens for Agarda to in order for Agarda to be allowed to drive with blue lights and sirens they're required to complete what is known as a CBD2 training that allows them then to pursue vehicles at high speed as well as using the lights and sirens but the numbers of Gardaí trained for that CB2 drop significantly during the recessionary times and it's never really recovered. And it, according to the journal.ie, a Garda inspector's report published just before Christmas found that over 80% of Garda are not trained to drive with lights and sirens. So the Garda have been raising this issue as well. And then somebody else, and you kind of know, God, it's angry text. Wake up, says somebody. Wake up. Same privilege was draw was withdrawn. I'm, I'm assuming is what you what you mean from private ambulances and horses have blue lights. I don't know what the horses have blue lights, but withdrawing it from private uh, ambulances. I'm assuming it's all to do with the fact that in 2015 the emergency services driving standard initiative that was introduced, but it was a voluntary code for emergency services drivers, which would have included the Coast Guard drivers. I mean, they're referring back to that directive. So I'm assuming that the private ambulances fell under that. The big difference, though, I would see with private ambulances, and I'm not saying private ambulances don't save lives, they do, but they don't respond to calls, do they? I mean, whereas the the Irish Coast Guard and the other emergency services are responding to a call. Usually if a private ambulance is engaged, it's been pre-booked and all of that. So, um, but... They, they're not allowed to drive with the flashing blue lights either. But thank you uh, for your text. Someone else says, Morning Patricia, this happened to the volunteer firefighters in West Cork. They also had to stop using the blue lights. John and McCroom says, if the Coast Guard drivers are not trained to drive in high speed conditions, they've no business using the blue uh, lights and the sirens. The same applies to non-trained Garda, which I just just mentioned. But in the defence of the Irish Coast Guard services, who in their vehicles, by the way, have the blue lights, have the sirens, they're already equipped uh, with them. Similar. I mean, you know the Irish Coast Guard. It's very similar to any of the other emergency response vehicles. But the drivers have never been permitted to use high speeds or to break red lights like, for example, an ambulance or the fire service can do. When the Irish Coast Guard, what they have been doing to date, if they're responding to a call, 
they only put on the blue lights and the sirens to help them get through traffic to get to where the emergency is as quickly as possible. They've never been permitted to use. They're not driving at high speeds. So I don't know if they need, to, why they would need to have special training just to turn on the blue lights and the sirens. They're not going to be speeding up. They're not going to be flying through red lights. They've always operated under that uh, code. Anyway, time will tell what will happen with this one, but I have a feeling that we may, that they, they may, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm, I've, I've a feeling the powers of B are going to come back and look at this directive again, but who knows. Jerry and Kinsale says, are they going to stop the ambulances next? Paramedics, where will it all stop? Neiman Mitchestown says, I agree with Councillor John O'Sullivan who raised this issue on your programme. I think years ago, decisions were made uh, locally, be that in a local council office or at a local health Board office. Nowadays, many of these decisions are made in Dublin and if they go down the line, they'll usually go to somebody sitting in a city centre office. So you can have somebody in Dublin or in Cork City making a decision identifying with areas for an emergency in Cork County. Such identifying, sorry, anyway, making a decision that's going to affect areas in County Cork such as rural roads in North Cork roads are roads to beaches in West Cork this is somebody sitting at a desk in the office who won't know these areas we are gone too corporate says Liam in Mitchellstown as a society with our way of thinking those making decisions but not knowing are, are coming from the area or having even lived in the area or know the area at all that seems wrong to me and that's from Liam in uh, Mitchellstown 1850 what else is coming into us now we spoke about direct provision in the last hour John and Clam says hi Patricia the people in direct provision are human too and also need to be taken care of. But certainly listening to Evie uh, talking, it doesn't sound like they've been taken the best care of. I mean, the providers will say they're doing the best that they can. They're putting a roof over their head. They're providing food every day. But there's a lot more needs. A uh, human needs a lot more than just uh, food and shelter. And that's that's where the direct provision centres seem to be falling down and there's you know talks of huge levels of depression and uh, people feeling very very isolated uh, in these uh, centres Anne was on to us this is to do with an issue we've been discussing during the week the Castletown Bear the transportation plan this is a really good text in from Anne. Thank you Anne for taking the time to send us. Hi Patricia, I've been listening to all different points in the Castletown Bear transportation plan. Now I don't live in town but it would be my local shopping place. When we went to build our house a few years back we contacted the council planning office in Skibbereen. They came out and they viewed our site and they told us what would be acceptable and what would not be acceptable. So we went with them and we got our planning. By the way we got our planning no problem at all and they were an absolute pleasure to deal with. So why could roles not be reversed here? Why can't the council meet with the business community in the town before plans were submitted and thrash it out. I would not like for somebody to come into my front garden and start changing it, says Anne. 
Well, without at least prior negotiations. So you, you, you make a lot of sense in your text, And I mean, the one thing that we're hoping by highlighting the issues this week on the programme is to get everybody around a table and just get everybody sitting down. But you're right, the planners very much need to be involved. The people putting, the engineers who are going to put the plan together for the Castletown Bear Transportation Plan, they need to listen to everyone. Because certainly from the calls and the texts that we were receiving this week, there was the sense that people were not being listened to. I mean, if, if somebody is listened to and then you can, you know, they can articulate their point as to why they feel, I don't think that's going to work. And then if you have somebody on the other side saying, well, hang on a tick, you know, it, it will work and, and well then prove to me how it'll work. And then if somebody can show me how it's going to work and maybe get me, persuade me to look at it from a different angle or a different way, you, you then might change my mind on what I thought wasn't going to work but when you don't have people everybody getting together then everybody feel that they're being listened to I think that's the most important thing you need people who have concerns you need to listen to their concerns and then you need to go through their concerns with them and if they're valid take them on board and if they're not valid then you explain to the person but don't simply dismiss them and think that people put in all these submissions I mean we mentioned that when we carried the interview earlier that when the public consultation plan the engineers putting the report together said they'd never seen such a reaction there was over 200 people written submissions you know it wasn't just somebody you know signing their name to somebody it was somebody putting in a written submission with their objection and with their concerns and uh, their worries and the the and over half of them were negative submissions. So, you know, people just need to be listened to. So, yeah, and absolutely think you're right. That's what, that's what we need is to get everybody around a table and everybody listening to uh, each other. Can I touch on learner drivers? Because we've been talking about learner drivers this week on the programme. And we were waiting on a reply from the Road Safety Authority. Uh, we had somebody contacted us to say when the qualified driver is sitting in the car with the learner driver, does the qualified driver have to be insured on the learner driver's car? So we thought, good question. We will put that to the RSA. The RSA have come back and said the person, this is the fully qualified driver, the person just needs to be a fully licensed driver who has held their driving licence for more than two years, i.e. they can't be a novice driver, insurance applies to the driver only. And as part of their contract with the insurance company, they must stick to the terms and conditions of the learner permit, one of which is to be accompanied at all times with a fully qualified driver. But the answer basically is no. The fully qualified driver does not need to be insured on the car where they're accompanying the learner driver, which kind of dispels what some people were saying yesterday, that the qualified driver must be able to take over and drive for the learner driver. See, me, that is not part of the rules and regulations. We're still waiting on the drink question that we asked. We've bombarded them. The RSA are going to hate us this week. We've also asked the question, does the qualified driver, you know, if the qualified driver had a few pints, the scenario that came into us was the 17, 18 year old son who accompanied his dad to the pub to get in a bit of driving experience. The dad said, I want to go for a few pints. Here's the keys of the car. Take me to the pub. So the son drove. Son waits, goes in, you know, as a mineral, you know, uh, maybe chats with some of his friends or whatever. And then the dad has a couple of pints and said, OK, son, time to go home. 
You've got the car keys. Drive me home. Now, the dad is over the limit. He's just at a few pints. He's not falling around the place drunk, but he's he's over the limit if he was breathalysed. We, we, we found out that the, he couldn't be breathalysed as the accompanying, the as the qualified driver. But we wanted to know, was that allowed? And we're still waiting on an answer back back for that. We got some answers back about professional drivers and, and the, the drink driving limit, but that wasn't what we were asking. We did have another query in to the RSA. A listener questioned, the traffic corps stopping a lady and because she didn't she didn't have her driver's license on her she was treated as a professional driver is that the case if you don't have your driver's license with you you're in the car which you're meant to by the way by law and the RSA come back and say it is correct now this is one a new one for me if a driver cannot provide proof of their licensed status there and then when they are breathalysed at the side of the road, they're tested at the lower level, that, that of a professional driver, which is 20 milligrams. Now, until they can then provide proof, obviously. But but if a professional driver fails a breathalyser, lower range, 20 milligrams, they're then taken down to the Garda station, which is what would happen in the case of this lady, because she didn't have her driver's licence with her, with her. She wasn't a professional driver, by the way. But she'd had her driving licence. It's 50 milligrams for an ordinary driver. But because she couldn't prove that she wasn't a professional driver, she would be tested at the lower level, 20 milligrams. So make sure you have your driving licence with you at all times. And Patrick in Formoy said, um, eight cars a week are being taken off the road. This is the eight cars a week that are being impounded because of uh, learner drivers who have been stopped by members of Angarda, she called her, and they don't have a qualified driver with them. Those eight cars, eight cars a week, taken off the off the road from learner drivers. These are learner drivers, as Patrick in Formoy, people who are trying to get to work and keep themselves and the country going and keep themselves out of hotel rooms, streets and trouble. It is so unfair. I am nearly in tears Every time I hear about these learner drivers and the enforcement, the stricter enforcement on them, people are losing their jobs over this. They simply cannot get to and from work because they need to be able to drive and there isn't anyone around to sit in the car with them. And if they get caught, we know now what can happen with eight cars a week being impounded. 1850-333-103. C103 Jobs. Healthcare assistance and multitask assistance are required for Nazareth House in Mallow. While Bantry Credit Union, they are looking to create a panel of candidates for temporary teller vacancies. A coach driver is required with a D licence. It's for a school run in the Bandon area. And Pets Plus, they're looking for a qualified dog groomer. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Task, who are the think tank for action on social change, this week released a report highlighting that some employers are getting away with maintaining low pay and insecure jobs because welfare payments are buffering workers from the worst effects. Dr Robert Sweeney from Task uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Robert. Good morning. And you're welcome to the programme. What are we talking about here? Family income supplement, job seekers allowance. It's basically subsidising people's wages. Well, yeah, I mean, what what I would say first, um, before I get into that, is that the welfare state in Ireland um, does does a very important job of lifting a number of people out of poverty 
we have among the highest uh, so-called market inequality in the developed world, um, meaning inequality through pay and also when you add rents and dividends and all the, all the kind of capital income, and only for a progressive taxation system and particularly a system of transfers, we we would have you know enormously high inequality and all the social problems that go with that. Um, but in order to reduce Ireland's level of inequality, uh, we really need to look at the issue of uh, low pay in Ireland. Um, Ireland's rate of low pay is among the highest in the EU. It's about 23% of workers um, work in low pay uh, positions. Um, and only for um, a lot of people at the lower end of the job market also receive uh, transfers. They themselves would live in poverty. It's not that we should, you know, reduce transfers. We need to uh, make work pay better. better. And in the report, we look at a number of things. Uh, we look at, you know, inequality in Ireland overall, and we find that Ireland now ranks in the middle. It's historically been a high inequality country, but as other countries have grown more unequal over time and less has changed here, Ireland now ranks in the middle. But importantly, we look at the scope for uh, redistribution in Ireland, and we examine sector by sector of the Irish economy, and we find that in almost every sector of the Irish economy, um, income is more unequally distributed here compared to other uh, small open economies in the UK. An important sector in this regard would be the wholesale and retail sector, which essentially means the retail sector, in that this is where most people, who, uh, this has the highest number of low-paid positions. And Does it also, need, that's also, retail is also an area where the famous zero-hour contracts are used quite a lot. Yes, yeah, that is correct. So there is uh, a problem with precarious work in Ireland, as there is in other countries, and previous uh, task research has shown that as well. So in addition to addressing um, levels of precariousness when they exist, we also need to make work pay. Um, so that's having decent pay and conditions, as well as having stability of contract and employment. So there's a number of mechanisms that you could do to address this. We could gradually move towards a living wage, for instance, or we could have um, employers and unions uh, bargain sector by sector for pay, which means that in those sectors that can't afford pay increases, they don't, uh, but those that can, they do. And this should generally be complemented by other public policies that reduces Ireland's cost of living. I'm sure many of the, your listeners will know that households in Ireland face very high costs of living, mm. whether that's uh, childcare, healthcare. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, 
things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Housing, but it's not only um, households that are affected by that. It's also businesses are affected by the high cost of living. Whether, again, that's property costs, legal costs, insurance costs. So we should complement a, a strategy of making work pay better for those at the lower end of the distribution with public policies which reduce Ireland's cost of living, which will not only benefit most people in society, but will give employers space uh, to actually make work pay better for those at the lower end. What about the minimum wage? I mean, is that a step in the right direction or is, is that not working? I mean, we have a a high nominal minimum wage, so I think it's something in the region of I think it's nine eighty. Last time I I looked at it, so that's a high nominal minimum wage. So when you compare Ireland to other European countries, yeah. it appears to be high. But then when you factor in that Ireland has a very high cost of living, Ireland's minimum wage isn't as good as it appears. And then when you factor in that other countries, such as the Nordic countries, don't actually have statutory minimum wages because employers and unions uh, set wages sector by sector. Um, so, yes, we have a minimum wage, but it isn't sufficient. It, it does protect people on the lowest, but there's not that many people who are actually earning the minimum wage. And having a decent minimum wage, which is somewhat flattered by Ireland's cost of living, doesn't percolate uh, above through the, all of the kind of lower end of the pay distribution. So as I mentioned before, Ireland has high levels of low pay. Okay, Patrick, one of our listeners says, good to hear you discussing this on the programme uh, today. Patricia, could you ask uh, your expert, what about zero-hour contracts? Are they not to be banned? And by the way, our expert is Dr. Robert Sweeney from TASC. Zero-hour contracts, Robert, they're, they're to go. Isn't there talks that they're going to get rid of them? Yes, I, I believe that there's legislation in the Doyle at the moment. And um, we here at TASC would definitely support that. Um, so we definitely need to have greater stability of contract in Ireland. And that will certainly uh, help um, people towards the lower end of the distribution. But that alone isn't sufficient in raising the living standards of those towards the bottom end of the pay distribution and the income distribution. It needs to be complemented by other policies, the ones such as the ones I've outlined. Mm. Um, lowering Ireland's cost of living, uh, moving towards, for instance, a living wage and even better than that, 
you set a pay sector by sector with agreement from employers and also at unions. Okay, and we would have a lot of our listeners uh, living in uh, rural areas and working in the agricultural sector. So I was really interested to read in your in your report that agriculture is the most unequal sector in the Irish economy. Yeah, so in looking at the scope for redistribution in the Irish economy, we obviously wanted to get a sense of which sectors of the uh, economy is income most unequally distributed. And we also then compared those sectors to how unequal they are in other countries. And one of the surprising findings of uh, the research was that agriculture is indeed the, the most unequal sector in Ireland in terms of the distribution of income. That suggests that there is some scope for redistribution in the agricultural sector. Now, obviously, there are large differences uh, between different types of farms. So you have, um, for instance, dairy farmers whose average income, from memory, I think, is about €90,000 per annum. And then you have um, struggling sheep farmers whose income is only, I think, or €17,000 per annum. Mm. So, yes, there is very large inequalities in the uh, agricultural sector but it's and there is as such then scope for redistribution but you'd really have to look at which types of farms yeah. um, when you're actually implementing you know policies to redistribute okay uh, great report well done uh, robert we leave it there thank you for that and thanks for joining us on the program Okay, thank you Good very much. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. That is uh, Dr. Robert Sweeney of TASC, who are the think tank for action on uh, social change. 1850-333-103. John Paul, uh, taking your calls. Don't forget to keep your pet questions coming in. Jane Pickett, our resident vet, will join us in the final hour of the programme. If you have a pet question, uh, get that in to us. You can text her WhatsApp 86 103 103 And uh, the C103 Cash Tracks with Cavanus uh, continues to Day and today's superstar of the day is the wonderful Madonna. So at some stage today, you are listening out for two Madonna tracks. When you hear the two Madonna tracks, when the second song plays, you need to get dialing 1850-333-103 and caller 50 when the second Madonna track plays will win €500. It's part of our €5,000 giveaway with Cash Tracks with Cavanus, the new name for Ford in Mallow for new and used car sales. You can visit Cavanus.com. Cash Tracks continues tomorrow on C103. Your chance to grab a share of five grand. 8.15 is when I'll announce the superstar of the day for Friday. Plus, what would you do with 1,740 euro? Spend paddies in New York? Maybe book that two weeks in the sun this summer? Three chances to win it tomorrow. The latest news and traffic for Cork. And we lump in a bit of crack as well. See you tomorrow morning. C103. And joining me in studio for this week's Guard the Fight is Sergeant Tony Cronin. Good morning to you, Tony. Good morning. And you are very welcome. Actually, there's a question I'm sure you can answer this uh, rather than just getting on to the RSA about it. Uh, somebody wants to know when you've passed your driving test, you're off your L plates, on your end plates, do you have to have a qualified driver with you for the two years while you're driving around with your end plates? No, you don't. No. Um, basically, the insurance now has got uh, more strict in that when a learner permit uh, holder gets insurance, Normally, uh, your insurance uh, states, uh, as well as the legislation, that you're not um, insured unless you're accompanied by um, qualified a driver. fully qualified driver. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
So you don't have to be accompanied when you're on your end, on, end on your place. Yeah. But an end plate driver cannot act as the qualified driver for another learner driver. That is correct. Yeah, There's yeah. a two years to You have to be two years. OK, so to that listener in Cork City who obviously is, has somebody going for the test, is going for the test. Once you pass your test, you can drive unaccompanied. OK, you want to kick off Gar the Five this week with a burglary in Mitchellstown. Yes, um, uh, Patricia, we've um, a burglary there from... Um, last uh, Tuesday, which is the 19th of February last, and it occurred at around uh, 10 to 6 in the evening. Now, this is um, unusual. It occurred in George Street in Mitchestown, residential area, busy uh, street in the uh, town centre, and there was only a 10 or 15 minute time frame in this, whereby uh, a number of people uh, gained access to um, a dwelling house, and they went through the house in 10, 15 minutes and made their escape. Now, there was uh, suspicious activity in that area at the time, and the Gardaí are looking for anyone with any information regarding there was a sighting of um, a silver sab in the area, and that there was three or four males seen acting suspiciously for a very short period of time in that general area. Now, if you have any information on either the car, the registration number, do you know the car? Have you seen it before? Or did you see the individuals involved, or could you identify them? If you can assist the Gardaí in Mitchellstown, they'd be delighted to get a call. It could be a call to say, I can describe a person or I can give it, we'll say age, whatever it is. And it could help in the The inquiry. registration of the car. Exactly. Any yeah. any bit of information because it could help to either take someone out of the equi- you know, investigation yeah. or uh, put them into the investigation. Okay, but, but a very short time period. A very short time period from 10 to 6 last Tuesday evening, the okay. 19th of February to five past six. Well, so it was kind of a smash and grab in a sense in that they made a, a very quick entry and 10, 15 minutes max inside in the house and gone again. And again, we're talking about uh, a number of males and uh, a possible silver sab in that area. So if okay, you can if think back, please give the Guardian Mitchellstown a call. Tuesday of this week. And let's move from Mitchellstown to Yall, where you also have a report of a burglary. Yes. Uh, we have a burglary there last Sunday, the... Um, 17th of February last and this was a burglary which took place in the Clan Priest area of Yall. It was a daytime burglary sometime around 11am to 5pm the house uh, was vacant okay. uh, during those hours and what we were asking the public for any information please because the house was entered um, uh, a window was forced open and the house gone through and there was items taken that will be offered uh, for sale there'll be um, personal items there'll be jewellery items etc. So we would ask you just to think back. Last Sunday, people would be out for a walk. Mm. Nice day. Um, Yall is a popular spot. Very, very popular spot. You could be going, we'll say, for by to lunch down to Yall, maybe going for a walk and you could be driving around the town in that area. And you possibly could have seen something suspicious, maybe some person looking um, to observe was anyone around and then someone gaining access into the house. And uh, they possibly had transport uh, nearby Basically, this could have been done in 10 or 15 minutes as well, this type of a crime. And that they, they forced their way in, went through the house very quickly, took what they could take with them, carrying, uh, like we'll say personal items like jewellery, etc., anything disposable and quickly disposable. So we would ask you please to think back to last Sunday, uh, daytime crime. Did you see anyone acting suspicious or was there any car um, parked nearby that you wouldn't really recognise uh, as being a local car to that area? In the Clant Priest area of Yall, please give the Gardaí in Yall 
uh, called. Okay, it always saddens me and sickens me when I hear of any kind of damage or robbery done in a church. And it's just unfortunate to come to the Church of the Resurrection in Mallow. You have a report of some criminal damage. Yes, Patricia. Last Saturday, which is the 16th of February, an incident occurred uh, at uh, the Church of the Resurrection in Mallow. Now, this is a very busy area in that, we'll say, you have Sandfield uh, Estate. You have a very busy area there, dwelling houses. You the have arches the school. is just across the, the road. The arches across the road. It's a very popular area here. People, we'll say, um, GA teams, you know, they meet there before they um, head off to Cork for matches, etc. Mm. Uh, it's kind of a meeting up place for a lot of people, you know, going walking, etc. Part cars there. But on this particular occasion, we're talking last Saturday, at 10 to 3, there was a number of youths in the vicinity of the Church of the Resurrection. They got up on a, a flat roof. Uh, this individual got up on the roof and it's kind of a glass kind of roof on this flat part of the ceiling. And with what happened, the individual went through the roof and was observed and, and damage was caused within. Obviously, there are statues inside, so yeah. they, they fall through the skylight. And the... Um, People that were involved in this didn't fled the scene. So God, he, could have, he could have killed himself as well at the same time, the stupid Egypt. But anyway. Um, exactly. Any any kind of serious harm could have been caused to this yeah. particular person who committed this uh, offence. Now, there was no reason for the people to be up on this roof. They had no reason to be there. Okay. Uh, they certainly didn't have permission to be up there. But we are aware that there were people in the vicinity of the car park who observed what happened. And who know... Who was, who was involved and who would be in a position to assist the Gardaí with the identification of these uh, persons who okay, were present this was la- Saturday of last weekend last Saturday yeah. and we're talking about 10 to 3 to 3.15 ok so it's a very short time as again. you say busy time busy time so people please people around Dano's doing shopping that's, you know, it's a busy spot exactly you may okay. have seen someone with say uh, youths or anyone in this area and people taking off uh, on foot there was no car involved in this. So it was um, people who were not a million miles away from the area who okay. were, would have been involved in this. Okay, Mallow Gardaí. Now, uh, before we get on to checking the passports, the listener says if a person has lost their provisional driver's licence, which, by the way, also happens to be out of date, how do you go about getting another one? Do you need to... Is um, that the RSA for the driver's licence? NDLS. 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 And okay. there's an office here in Mallow, so you make an appointment online. Yeah. Through, I don't know uh, where that text is coming from. Wherever they're coming from, they're, they're, there's one in the city. There's one in Skipperine, I think, as well. Exactly, West Cork, yes. isn't it? Okay, yes. so NDLS and just apply for new one. They don't have to, the fact it's, that they've they've lost the other provision licence doesn't um, matter? No, go, but basically uh, it, what may be an issue is there might maybe a time frame for how long the licence had expired. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. maybe. Okay, but, but if get, it's provision, get, get on to be. NDLS and you'll be yes. okay. Now, passports. This is, this is something that comes up every year with coming up to holidays and the, I, it staggers me the amount of people who will be the night or two before holidays realise the passport is out of date. It yes. really is the start of the year you need to start checking your passports. Yeah, yes, and for a number of reasons uh, to check the passports because what you find is that, um, you know, when there's two parents, um, if they're living in the same house or if they're living in different houses, that um, both parents have to sign the passports. Okay. And uh, even, we'll say, if everybody's living in the one house and you have two adults and, we'll say, three children, you might forget about uh, the third child and say, oh, well, sure. Yeah they have a passport and it is in date but you might get caught in the situation whereby the age could be a factor in that they may be 14 or 15 and the other two children could be 
19 or 20 and they have their five year or 10 year passport mm. whereas we'll say the um, juvenile the hasn't one, yeah. you know it might be a three year in that sense so it's very important to check the All dates the passports. and to see how, how long they're valid for um, there's lots of reasons for it because people will ring up the Garda station uh, it'll be the last minute what do I do now there is a, a helpline number with the passport office you know in an emergency service and when they can facilitate they do um, it doesn't always happen we'll say that they can do it because the time frame may be too short but there is an extra fee then so the people would need to know that Okay, you are paying more then for that service out of, out of our service but we would encourage the people please just check your passports if you do intend going make sure if you have children in school if they're going to Calcutta if they're going to Lourdes if they're going on a school trip make sure they have them in date and that both parents are around to sign them okay. the and even the for your own passport I got caught I have a, a my passport is, is not going to be out until the end of May but I'm making a trip at the start of May and the country I'm going to have insisted that I must have 90 days on my passport so I had to reapply for a new passport and for the first time ever I did it on that online system and I had it back in five days so it's, re- it's, re- it's really Speeds good but up. just it's just you don't get notification to say your passport is out yes. and that's what happens so you, mm-hmm. so you need to check Stretch in the evenings high-vis va- jackets Yes uh, we're coming into the time of the year now where there's a lot of events on public roads be it road races um, fundraising walks items like this cycle events so uh, we'd ask uh, people that are partici- participating in these events and also pedestrians to make sure it might be bright when you're going out but put on your fluorescent jacket because you might stop talking to someone next thing it's getting dark. You could be on your own road. It could be a country road and yet someone won't see you. So it's a good habit to get into. It's like driving daytime with your lights on. Good habit. Anytime you're going walking, put on your fluorescent jacket or if you're going running or if you're going on your, your bicycle. And there are items that can be got through agencies such as the RSA whereby fluorescent jackets can be um uh, got for different uh, groups, you know, schools, etc., things like that, and also um, they have uh, backpack um, fluorescence. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that you put on the back. Yeah, you put them on. Like yeah, so just yeah, light just be up. Aware of that. Yeah, light, light up. And people are heeding it. Well, some are heeding the warnings. Last locking the cars in the driveways. Yes, we would just like to thank the public. We have been harping on there for a number of weeks about um, cars not being locked in driveways, you know, of estates and private houses. And thankfully, we haven't uh, received as many calls in, in the past uh, two weeks about uh, such type of break-ins. So we would encourage the public, please, lock when you go into your house, make sure your car is locked and lock your back door. When you uh, and even if it's only for the few minutes, even if you're just all running in to get something, it's in it's split-second stuff is when it, a lot of these exactly, robberies start. We, we see from the burglaries that have, uh, we've just spoken about that they're a very short time frame, yeah. 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, and they can be in and out of your car. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. That is uh, Sergeant Tony Cronin based on Madagascar this day. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Welcoming you along to the final hour of the programme. Jane Pickett, our resident vet, will join us in this hour. So if you have a question for Jane, please, one of the animals in your household feeling unwell, you'd like a bit of uh, advice from Jane, 1850 Text or WhatsApp 86 Can I just pay reference to, there's been some calls and I can see some text messages in as well coming in throughout the morning about the Road Safety Authority and the Clancy ad, the Road Safety uh, ad where Noel Clancy, the widow, is talking about the loss of his wife Geraldine and uh, his daughter Louise. 
and people are talking about the fact that it's been on the Joe Duffy show and it was on again yesterday and how the Road Safety Authority were on defending why they put this ad uh, together. Uh, I'm not ignoring your texts and calls but in our defence we covered this issue a few weeks ago on the programme and we did at the time went to great lengths to try to get the Road Safety Authority to join us to talk to us about their rationale their rationale behind making that ad because that ad has certainly divided people there are people feel it's a very strong message and a message that we need to get out there about learner drivers driving unaccompanied but then there's the other side of the coin with people saying how unfair that ad is to the long, young learner driver who was involved in that accident who never got up that morning to go out and cause uh, any deaths and she has delivered the consequences of it for the rest of her life to she and her family need to constantly see it on TV, on radio, on the internet and indeed even in the cinema. So we well covered both sides uh, of it but we did ask the Road Safety Authority to join us and and for whatever reason they were never available. There was either they were at meetings they were out sick, they were away on holidays, they were never ever available uh, to talk to us. So we never actually got to talk to us. But I, I, I did hear what it on Joe Duffy yesterday. So I am aware that it went on and I am aware of what was spoken about. So I'm not ignoring your comments and I'm not, n- nervous is probably the wrong word. I'm very aware when we discuss this issue that there are two families suffering, two families who will suffer for the rest of their lives. The Clancy's, obviously, with the the loss of Geraldine and Louise, but also the other family, the family of the young learner driver, they will suffer for the rest of their lives uh, as well. And they're local, they're in our area, and I'm very conscious of that. And I'm very conscious of neighbours and friends and family friends. And whenever it comes up or whenever this issue gets discussed, John Paul gets flooded with calls and I'll get flooded with uh, texts and uh, emails as well. So it's, as I say, um, we're just trying to be sensitive to everyone, but we're certainly not shying away and we're not avoiding dis- uh, discussing it. And we appreciate every text and comment and call and email that we get to the programme. So I just want to acknowledge we have uh, received them. And John in Mallow makes the point that the law was always there. This is the law on learner drivers. But what's happened due to the Clancy uh, Amendment is the penalties are more severe and Shane Ross is insisting that the new law is enforced. People, but listening to some people, Patricia, texting in uh, and asking, for example, if a dad is after having a few pints, uh, are they covered to be with the learner driver as the qualified uh, driver shouldn't be entertained. All you'll end up doing is you'll be giving Shane Ross, uh, you'll be giving him other ideas. And actually, we got a number of questions in while Sergeant Tony Cronin, Cronin was in for Crime File on the very issue. Like, for example, somebody says, can you ask the Garda about the person who has the full licence? Do they have to be insured? We already dealt with that, by the way, and we got the answer from the Road Safety Authority who tells us that the qualified driver in the car uh, needs to have, um, needs to be fully insured, but not necessarily on the car. It says the person just needs to be fully a fully licensed driver who's held their licence for more than two years. Insurance applies to the driver only. Okay, so you don't have to be insured on the car unless it's the terms and conditions. Obviously, I know Aviva, for example, are doing something with learner drivers at the moment. Uh, But if they're not with a company which specifically says you can only be with this person, then no, the qualified driver 
who's accompanying does not have to be insured on the car. And then another question came in and this is sort of ties in with the one that we're waiting on the answer back from the RSA. It says, Patricia, could you ask the Garda? If a fully qualified driver is supervising a learner driver, are they, requ- requ- are they regarded as a professional driver for the blood alcohol limit if stopped on the side of the road? Now, I did ask Tony that question and Tony said, no, uh, if he was stopping a, qual- a learner driver who had a fully qualified driver with them and it was a random breath test was happening. The person to be breathalyzed is the person driving the car. It's not the person accompanying the driver. So he said certainly he wouldn't, the, that scenario and would would they be deemed a professional driver doesn't come into the mix because he wouldn't be breathalyzing the qualified driver sitting in with the learner driver. It's only the learner driver. And obviously a learner driver is at the lower level is, is deemed the same as the professional driver. They're at the lower blood alcohol uh, level. And somebody else has a question to do with the driver's licence saying, if I change my home address and on my driver's licence and I have my licence for two years, who do I need to contact? Anything to do with the driver's licence, it's the uh, NDLS that you get onto. Go online. They have all of the answers to all of those questions online. You might be able to, able to do it online. But if you've lost a driver's license, which somebody had contacted us about earlier, it's NDLS. You need to and you need to make an appointment to go into NDLS to actually get your driver's license. But if you get onto them about a change of an address or a lost driver's license, that's where you, that's where you'll be going at with that one. Keep your pet questions. There's a couple of pet questions coming in. Thank you for that. Some people reacting to. The piece that we did with uh, Task, these are the think tank for action on social change and they were looking at low pay and showing that employers are getting away with maintaining low pay and insecure jobs because our welfare payments are buffering workers from the worst effects. And we spoke about things like the minimum wage. We spoke about things like zero hour, hour uh, contracts, some con- some commentary in on that. A West Cork listener says on zero hour contracts. It's claimed that when the Department of Social Protection inspectors found employers abusing rules or employers claiming they weren't obliged to pay PRSI for an employee, the decision in most cases was overturned by the Department of Social Welfare on appeal. I took a part-time job with a tourism-based employer where I thought my PRSI, etc. was being deducted from source only to be told tax etc was my baby. I wasn't even asked to sign a contract of employment when employed says this West Cork listener and that's exactly the kind of things that this particular report from Task was looking at and talking about you know there were some employers out there that are almost working the system and they're getting away with it by practices like that which is we need to make work pay that's exactly what this report shows we need to make work pay and John says a person on a minimum wage will never have a pension never own a house or never have health insurance as long as they're stuck on minimum wage again we need to make work pay. Now, somebody else says, John, starts the text with John Paul, but actually the texts and the WhatsApps come into me. Now, John Paul has access to them, but I actually get them directly into me here so that John Paul spends his time answering phones. We can't have him doing everything. And this text says, John Paul, she, Cat's mother, i.e. me, she, let me come back to it, uh, keeps on about the negative submissions. This is to do with the Castletown Bear Transportation Plan. 
she keeps on about the negative submissions and how they were over half of the 200 that were against the plan. The council have proof and we all know it here in Beira that the majority were duplicated and just signed by the same family over and over again. Everybody knows this in Castletown Bear, says a texter that remains anonymous. There's no name on that uh, text. Well, all I know is the when I did my research on it, when I looked into it, I was I found out that there was 233 written submissions following the second round public consultation um, that was held in April of last year. So 233 written submissions went in against the Castletown Bear transportation plan. 26 of the submissions were supportive, 18 were neutral and 56 were categorised as unsupportive. Now, even the company, the engineer with ACOM, which is the consultant engineers who were engaged by Cork County Council to carry out the report, they said that they had never before experienced such feedback and input into a study. Me thinks that if that 56% were all or the majority of them were duplicates all signed by the same family. Me thinks that the engineer would have copped that and wouldn't be coming out saying that they'd never experienced such feedback and impact into the study. So I'm sorry, I don't have any proof to say that the majority of them were duplicate and duplicated and were all signed by the same family. I'm just going on what I have been at reading. If you can prove and show to me something different, then I will willingly discuss that with you as well. 1850 Michael says this is on the flashing blue lights and the sirens and the Coast Guard's been told to stop driving around with the lights and the sirens and this directive that was issued. The directive is out for quite some time. What's the date on the directive? The directive came out in 19, or 19, in 2015. It's the Emergency Services Driving Standards Initiative. It's an, it's an initiative. It's a voluntary code for emergency services drivers, which includes the Coast Guards and it was endorsed by the Road Safety Authority. So it was an initiative that came out in 2015 and it was a voluntary code and now they're being told by this directive that rather than being a voluntary code, you must abide by it. It's from what we can gather they're now being told. I presume, says Michael, that the Lights and Sirens Directive, will it also affect the likes of Dr Jason and the Jeep for Jason, as in emergency use lights and sirens in an emergency, which they have to do on a regular basis around the roads of West Cork? Just more crazy bureaucracy, says uh, Michael. Yeah, I'm, I, I take it it will affect, that's an emergency service, the rapid response, but then will it affect all of the rapid response uh, vehicles? Only time will tell. Because what's happened now is it's the Irish Coast Guards have decided to go public on it. It'll be interesting in the days and weeks ahead as this story gains momentum and I imagine more media will start picking up on it, the more media attention it will get. Uh, then we'll we'll find out if more of the emergency services and the, particularly the volunteer ones will more and the, more and more of those come out and say yeah we're caught up in this as well. Eighteen fifty three 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 one zero three pet questions please text or WhatsApp zero eight six two one zero three one zero three. The C one zero three Cork Diary with Cork County Council supporting businesses supporting communities serving Cork. Visit corkcoco.ie. There is a beef plan meeting going on in the West Lodge. Hotel in Bantry tonight at 8. All beef farmers, please, 
are invited to attend the blood transfusion service donor clinics in the Maritime Hotel in Bantry today 3 to 5 this afternoon and 7 to 9 uh, tonight Kildallery Community Development their lottery draw is on in Walsh's Bar uh, this evening with a jackpot of €3,100 Hurleyhees Centre in Mallow are hosting a coffee morning for Mallow Daffodil Day Committee tomorrow Friday the 22nd of February from 10.30am to 12 noon all support for the Irish Cancer Society is very very much appreciated My Place a youth and community facility in the heart of Middleton will host a massive collection of GAA memorabilia it includes memorabilia from Cork hurling legend Christy Ring. It's happening this Saturday from 11am to 4 with guest appearance by the Cork Ladies senior football star Orla Farmer, Sheila McCarthy and Leanne McDonough. And a cheque for €2,330 will be presented to the Motor Neuron Society on Saturday night at 8 in Murray's Hall Rail View in McCroom. It's the proceeds from the fundraising concert for Father Tony uh, cook, walk while you can. Now, as we mentioned uh, earlier, and some of our listeners quite shocked with this case, two young men were jailed uh, for an unprovoked, violent, and continuous attack on a man who was walking home uh, through Cork City Centre. Fiona Cork, when our senior news reporter, was at the Cork circuit court for C103 News uh, when this case uh, was being heard. Uh, and she joins me. Good afternoon to Fiona. Good afternoon, Now, Fiona, this is the case of John O'Driscoll, a 45-year-old man who was walking home through the Cork City Centre. Tell us what happened. That's right, Patricia. Um, John O'Driscoll had just finished working and he was walking through the city centre in the early hours of the morning and he came to the junction of Grand Parade and South Mall when he was attacked by two young men, Jamie Crowley and Peter Carroll. And we heard <coughs> yesterday in court that they uh, they threatened him, demanded money from him and then they started to uh, beat him and we heard that um, that um, Mr. Carroll had a knife and he had stabbed him twice with the knife, once in the shoulder and um, Peter Carroll uh, kicked him in the head a number of times when he was on the ground. Now, um, he, the man, um, John O'Driscoll, said in a victim impact statement that the attack was so vicious that he really feared for his life. He thought that they were going to kill him. And at one stage, he managed to to escape and he threw a 100 euro note on the ground and um, he thought that this might deter them. And, and But it didn't. In fact, they picked up the money and, and they chased him across the road and proceeded to attack him again. And um, he said then that he got a... a a steel metal um, beer keg from a bar that was nearby and he put that up as a barrier between himself and them and he said that if it wasn't for this action he really believes that he would have been killed um, and then he managed to, the the two young men then ran away and he managed to get himself to Anglesey Street Garden Station where the emergency services were contacted and he was brought to hospital and we heard the extent of his injuries yesterday. He had suffered a broken jaw, loose teeth, damaged lungs, multiple cuts and bruises to his hands, face, uh, legs. Um, he was out of work for a week. He said he still has problems with his jaw. Um, he was unable to eat for a while afterwards. And he said that mentally and psychologically, he's been scarred from this attack. He said that he feels very uneasy walking around the streets of Cork now on his own. And... Um, we heard then that uh, the men were arrested sometime after the attack and they made um, 
the full admission and they pleaded guilty to two charges here at the Cork Criminal Court yesterday. Um, they pleaded guilty to a charge of robbery and they also pleaded guilty to a charge of assault. Um, now, the judge heard that um, at the time... Um, one of the men, uh, Mr Crowley, was on bail. He has 36 previous convictions and he happened to be on bail at the time of this offence. 36 uh, previous convictions? Yeah, and he's a 22-year-old man. We heard that he um, first got into trouble when he was very, very young, only the age of eight. He was um, in trouble for assaulting somebody. So he has uh, quite a, a, a disturbed um, history. He had a lot of uh, previous convictions for somebody of such a young age. And more surprisingly than that, the other young man had absolutely no previous convictions whatsoever. This was his first time coming before the court. Um, and he just seemed to get involved in this and get, get carried away on the night. Um, but the judge said that when he was sentencing, he said that it was... that the, He said it was remarkable. It was actually breathtaking, the level of violence that was used in this attack and that it was completely unprovoked. They could see from the CCTV footage that this man um, was just walking along when they came and just attacked him out of nowhere. Wrong place, wrong time for, for exactly. poor old John O'Driscoll. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, the judge commented on the level of violence and the fact that it was a continuous level of violence, the fact that the man had managed to escape once through money on the ground thinking it would be a deterrent and they came after him again and started attacking him and he said that it seemed on the night that they were just out to damage him and he said that you know he firmly believed in what Mr O'Driscoll said in his victim impact statement that you know he thought he was going to be killed if it hadn't been for his actions uh, of picking up the beer keg and um, using that to defend himself um, so the judge sentenced the two men yesterday to prison now with Mr Crowley he sentenced him to eight years in prison and suspended the last three years so he would be in jail for five years um, and Mr Carroll then he sentenced him to five years in prison with the final two years suspended so he got a three year prison sentence Did they apologise? Were they remorseful? Yeah, um, they said in court. Now they didn't. Neither of them took to the stand, but um, Mr. Carroll had submitted a letter to the court and said um, that he was deeply sorry for what he did, and it was totally out of character for him, and he apologised for what he had caused, for the pain and suffering that he had caused to Mr. O'Driscoll and to his family. Um, and the other man, uh, Mr. Crowley, also expressed remorse as well. Um, but the judge said, and it was an interesting point as well, that, um, you know, Mr. Crowley had been given a number of chances by the court in the past. He had been released on bail. He had been given a suspended sentence before. And he said the reason why, um, you know, courts do this, that they give suspended sentences or they may release somebody on bail, is to give people a chance to rehabilitate themselves. And he said that in this case... There didn't seem to be any signs that he was trying to do that. Um, he wasn't taking the opportunities that were given to him by the court before, so he had to impose a fairly um, lengthy prison sentence on him. And John O'Driscoll now, this 45-year-old man, just trying to get on with his own life, but as you say, feeling nervous every time he goes out on his own. Yeah, I mean, the physical injuries, um, you know, we heard that the stab wounds were superficial stab wounds and that they didn't penetrate deeply enough to thank cause God. any serious damage. But yeah, thank God. But like the judge said, it was still a stabbing. Um, you know, it's nothing superficial about a stabbing. So his physical wounds did heal and, um, you know, physically he's fine now, but mentally it would take a long time to get over an unprovoked attack like that, and especially one that would be so violent on somebody who, you know, he was just walking home after 
a, a shift, a work shift. You know, he wasn't even out himself that night, and he got attacked in this way. So, um, shocking. Yeah, it would take a while to get over something like that. Yeah. All right. Okay. Listen, Fiona, we leave it there. Thank you for that, Thank you. and uh, thanks for joining us. That is Fiona Corkwin, our senior news reporter, who was at Cork Circuit uh, Criminal Court uh, yesterday for that. Uh, sentencing and as the judge you know described it as vicious and frenzied just oh, and the CCTV footage was there uh, to prove it uh, 1850 keep your pet questions coming in please for Jane just some other things to pick up on Michael has been on to say Patricia can you warn other drivers please Travelling from Mallow to Canturk after the first turn off to Canturk from Mallow and before the old Duhalo Lodge, that area, there is slurry spreading in progress, but there are no signs on the road. And there is a sweeper travelling slowly on the road, sweeping off all the dirt, but it's driving so slowly. When I came around the corner, I had to slow down and obviously slow down very quickly because I wasn't expecting it. And the driver behind me had to brake fast. Uh, one could have ended up going into the back of me. So just warn drivers, please. Mallow to Canturk Road, slurry spreading going on. I suppose a general advice to everyone, if you're on any kind of a rural road, be prepared. You don't know what kind of agricultural trucks are going to be on the road just as you turn the corner. Other issues coming in. To, oh, there was something about Dublin Airport as well. Flights have resumed at Dublin Airport. There was a drone sighting earlier this morning and that uh, closed the airport for a while, but they're all back up and running again. And Tanette in Bishopstown was on saying, if somebody ha- who has a full licence but never did a driving test, now what she's talking about are were the people in the early 80s, a large cohort of people who received under an amnesty a full licence. This, this, these were people who were driving around on second and subsequent driving licence. They weren't um, learner permit. Well, there wasn't learner permits at the time. They were um, a provisional driving licence, they were called at the time. And anyone who was on a second or subsequent provisional driving licence back in the early 80s, because there was such a waiting list for driving tests, the government at the time decided that they'd have an amnesty and they allowed people to swap their provisional licence for a full licence. The theory was that they've been driving around long enough they must be more than capable of driving. It was a one-off amnesty and by the way due to EU rules it can never be repeated again for people who are holding on to a learner permit now believing one day should there be another amnesty and I'll be able to get my full licence that ain't never going to happen again. Anyway and today's just talking about that cohort of people they are now qualified drivers because they're on a full licence she wants to know if they were sitting in with learner drivers, would they still be considered a qualified driver, even though they never took a test? And many of them would have picked up bad habits. And Antoinette, they are deemed qualified drivers. They do have a driving licence. And you can say that they've picked up bad habits. Everybody picks up bad habits along the way. But yes, they are fully qualified drivers, even though they never took a test. And they will be entitled to sit in with a learner driver if the learner driver needs to be accompanied. We spoke about direct provision earlier on. Noreen says, why doesn't the authorities look at the HICWA reports into direct provision centres? They This would show the facilities in the provisions, in the provision centres. So maybe people need to look at HICWA reports into direct provision and see what standards are like at these centres. If HICWA are doing reports on direct provision centres, then you can be well 
you can be guaranteed that the powers that be are looking at those reports. HICWA don't do those reports just for the sake of them. They are taking taken very, very seriously in, indeed. Dan and Ballon Hasek says, well, this is on the issue that we did with Task talking about low pay and a report showing clearly showing that we need to make work pay in this country and unfortunately we're not making work pay at the moment. When you look at this report it shows that the low pay in this country 23% of the workforce are in low paid employment and the highest that's the highest proportion in the EU except for two other countries and do you know what the two other countries are? Romania and Latvia. So we're third on that list only beaten by Romania and Latvia for the number of workers who are going out to work every day but they're in low paid employment. Dan says well done on publicising uh, this we have a half a million people who earn €28,000 a year or less it is simply unfair says Dan in Ballonhasic and we have to do something in order to make work pay and that's why we like to we like to give uh, publicity where we can to reports like that one in the hope that something will be done. Uh, the slurry spreading is on, this is a text and the slurry spreading is on the Mallow Killarney Road. It's around Billy's Green for people who are in the know of that area. So please drive with care. And John says, Patricia, where are you getting your weather forecast from? Uh, it, it said... It was meant to be dry yesterday and it was still raining at five o'clock. Well, actually, our weather forecasts are issued by a very reputable source. We get them from Met Aaron. <laughs> so I can only get what's uh, in front of me. But yeah, they did seem... <laughs> the weather forecast yesterday did seem to not collate with exactly what we were told it was going to be. But I suppose those things can change as well. This is the Court Today replay on C103. Jane Pickett from the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group, joining me in studio. Good afternoon to you, Jane. Hi there. And uh, you're getting busy. We are. We're getting busy. Spring, Spring is taking off. All the joys of it. Lots of lambing, lots of calvings. But, um, you know, it, it's it's good fun, but it's tiring for everyone involved. Like right. for the farmers, this is their really, really busy period. They need do the support. You, do you still get excited to see the, the birthing yeah, process? I think you never get tired of it, really. Yeah. You might get tired of it at 4am in the morning, but it's still kind of the miracle of life. It's it's still an incredibly nice thing, and I suppose we don't mind doing the night work. It's part and parcel of the job we've signed up for. Mm. We're there to kind of help out, whether it's a small animal or a large animal, to make sure the welfare of the animal is maintained. They're kept healthy and comfortable, and if we can get them out of trouble, if they're in any trouble, particularly at this time with calving, we're happy to do. But so. most will birth naturally, will they? Vast is it? majority, yeah. the vast vast majority. Um, I suppose it's it's very much like humans. Most births are very natural, yeah. and the body is built for it essentially. Now and again, every now and again, an there's a spate of trouble, and I suppose I think the really important thing is, particularly the farmers we work with, they're very knowledgeable but generally quite proactive. If they see a problem coming up ahead, they're more likely to call us in early and make sure the problem is sorted and the animal is safe. They, the welfare of their animals under their care is utmost, and they're really great at protecting that. So sometimes we call out and help out whatever we can solve any problems if they're there. Um, sometimes it's for reassurance. Okay, so. and think of the farmers who were up all night as I well. Know. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's get straight into questions. Derek in Mallow, can dogs get dry fur? My dog's fur is kind of falling out and the skin underneath is starting to look scaly. Can this happen and why he's an indoor dog, three-year-old male and new shirt? Well done. You know, it can do. Um, I think 
with the scaliness I would be worried if you do have dry skin very much like humans with dry skin dogs and cats can get dry skin as well now if it's a problem that we're inside there's a little bit more kind of uh, heating in the house maybe it's a bit of a less humidified environment inside sometimes in the winter we find that I suppose like ourselves we get dry skin um then it would be a good idea to use a moisturising shampoo. So generally there'll be things with um, oatmeal in them as one of the most popular kind of emollients. Um, it's really moisturising for the skin. But in, the important thing there would be to use a dog shampoo um, because the pH of their skin is slightly different to ours and you want to make sure that you're not messing with the acid balance on the skin and causing more problems than you're solving. I think one thing to be mindful of is if the skin is scaly, you have to wonder, okay, if it's just a, a transient thing during the winter and it's just because it's a bit cold outside, less humidified and inside um, but if there's any itching or scratching going on then that's a bit of a different problem and sometimes we'll see a bit of scaliness if there has been some itching or scratching kind of mm. like if you had dandruff and you scratched your scalp yeah. you'd see it a bit more obviously um, and it's the same with them if there is some itching and scratching my first protocol will be to make sure you're up to date with your flea and mite control for your dog or cat okay. um, and make sure it's a good product you've used so generally something you get from a vet or a pharmacist will be safe and we know it's effective Um I think if you are worried and the itching or scratching persists beyond having done that little spot on treatment, then contact your vet just in case there is a, a bit of a deeper issue going on with the skin. It's like ourselves. A lot of things can be can be solved just by, I, I know myself, I get really dry hands when I go through the winter because I'm, I'm in the clinic washing my hands the entire yeah. time, yeah. trying to keep everything really hygienic and my hands get really sore and cracked over the winter time. But in the summer, I'm fine. So it could just be one of those things and, you know, like a moisturizer, like like we'd use ourselves a moisturising shampoo may well settle it down but just be aware that in the background we might be secretively scratching Okay so take a look at it yeah. Stay with the skin issue this time for a cat um, Hi question for Jane I have a three year old male cat new shirt fine and healthy recently he seems to be grooming himself to the point where he has patches where there's little or no hair particularly on a part part of his belly and his back legs just wondering what it could be doesn't seem to have any fleas Thanking you, says Fiona. Mm. Your thoughts so this on that? is an interesting one. Now, I think it's really interesting what Fiona says about where her cat is grooming. So on the belly, and it's the belly, uh, I understand. Yeah, and, and belly the back and the, legs. The back legs, exactly. Yeah. Now, if you, so you can almost the, picture it. You can almost picture it. It's a really interesting distribution. Um, I would wonder if something stressful has happened in this little cat's environment recently. It mightn't be something obvious. Maybe even you've just moved around the furniture or moved house or there's a new person in the house. Um, cats are incredibly sensitive to stress and they don't show it like other animals show it by hiding and being worried a lot of the time because they're, they're this funny mixture of they're both a prey and a predator species. So they're hardwired to kind of act like everything's fine all the time. What we might find is if you do see him grooming the belly and the back legs, they're the bits of his body it's really easy for him to get to. And what I would say is it's probably stress related as long as there's no fleas or mites. Okay, as long as there's no itching or scratching elsewhere. Why I say it's stress related is if you think about yourself and you're nervous, some people bite their nails. They're the easy thing to get to, to kind of allay yeah. that stress. It's exactly the same for a cat. The belly and the back legs are the easy places for them to lick. 
So it's kind of stress relief. It's distraction for them. But it's a little bit counterproductive because they can kind of set up a really sore skin environment on the belly and mm. possibly introduce some infection there. So I definitely try and help your little cat out with that. There's lots of things you can do to settle down stress. I think consistency and trying to keep everything very similar in a household will be my number one. It's really hard. I know life happens. Um, but just trying to keep everything as consistent as you can. You can get some pheromone plug-ins, so almost like an air freshener that plugs into the wall. That um, humans can that smell. That humans can smell, exactly, yeah. and it doesn't affect us at all. Um, but for little cats, um, sometimes you can get, it's kind of like the happy pheromone. It's like a happy hormone in, in the air that they can smell. And I normally recommend plugging one of those in, in the area they spend the most time in. You can't have them all over the house. So you don't want to spend a fortune, but plug it in in the place where they spend the most time. Because I, actually I had a cat that did it a number of years ago when we moved house. Healthy, yes. perfect cat. Mm-hmm. And for about six weeks, this constant grooming, constant, in exactly as Fiona's described. And mm-hmm. then once she settled, it stopped. But exactly. it was it was distressing to watch because. Exactly. OK, um, another. This is a listener, Castletown Bear uh, listener, an eight year old Jack Russell male. Despite all avenues, including many Apoquel treatments, mm-hmm. prescription food, tests, etc. Um, what else can be tried to cure reoccurring hot spots? Ah, this is a bit of a difficult one. What's a one. hot spot? A hot spot. It's a little bit of an interesting one. If you imagine ourselves, if you got a little cut or a scratch somewhere. Yeah. When you scratch that, if you get the temptation or maybe you're a kid, you've seen them having the temptation to, you know, scratch at their skin or at a, a healing wound. When you scratch at skin, And it's a little bit inflamed. It releases lots of histamine. And now histamine is that thing in your skin that sets off a chain reaction of the itch response. So the more you itch it, the itchier it gets. So we take an antihistamine. Exactly, exactly. Now, hot spots are kind of similar. For one reason or another, it might have, uh, your little dog might have an irritation for maybe it was a bite from a flea or a sting from an insect or even just a, a disagreement with let's say uh, something it's rubbed up against mm. something that's irritated the skin and for one reason or another your dog or cat has scratched that and then that sets up the cycle of they've scratched it so it gets itchy then they scratch it some more and then it gets itchier and it just consistently it's a vicious cycle of um, inflammation within the skin now With that, a lot of the time, if we give them anti-itching medication to kind of break that cycle a little bit and try and provide a barrier between them causing themselves trauma. So whether that's wearing one of those little plastic cones if they're biting at the area or or covering it even with, let's say, a plaster or a bandage as advised by your vet, um, then that can break the cycle a little bit. And once they stop, you know, following that itch scratch cycle, things begin to calm down with hotspots. Now. What's interesting is if that's a consistent problem, then it may have an underlying skin disease rather than just a hotspot problem. Um, Because hotspots are usually kind of just a one-off. They're incidental. They're not connected to an underlying skin issue. It sounds like from what, what our caller is saying that your little dog has been on lots of different medications for this. One of the ones she's talking about is a, a drug called Apoquel. Yeah. Um, it's it's a great drug. It has very few side effects and it can help to settle down itching. Now, it's normally something we use long term in dogs with allergic skin disease. Okay. Um, but we can use it for short periods of time as an anti-itching medication as well. I would say if this is a recurring th- problem and there are lots of appearing red hot spots I would say visit your vet it probably requires a little bit more of an in-depth investigation 
we probably need to rule out that there's any presence of parasites. Even if the coat looks clean, they might be hiding. Okay. So your vet will be able to do tests to assess that a bit better. And it's possible that we might need to just double check that there isn't a bacterial infection on the skin that's making things a little bit worse. So I think really visit your vet, have your dog looked at again. I'm sure they'll be able to work together with you to make a good plan. Yeah, and it looks like because they've gone through everything, it looks yeah. like they've been, they have been trying. It looks like Hang they've been in trying. There. You will get to the bottom of it eventually. I think you will do. Perseverance skin can be incredibly frustrating because it's, it is a little bit of a roller coaster. It can be slightly different the next day to when how it may have been a week ago yeah. um, all you can do really is just trust your vet trust the diagnostics they're doing and follow the plan to the letter as best you can and, and persevere because it's good I think you just need to calm down that itch for the welfare of your dog but it sounds like they're doing a good job at trying their best Okay a listener wants to know this is a five year old dog off his food today it's just been in the last 24 hours is drinking do I need to be concerned? Hmm. If he's drinking normally and just not eating and otherwise seems bright, bouncy, happy, 100% okay, you could see how it goes. Now, if you're at all concerned he's not 100% himself or if his drinking habits have changed, i.e. he's drinking less than normal or even more than normal, then I would advise seeing your vet just to catch out, catch early if there is any problem. Um, even just for reassurance for yourself, that's probably the best course of action. But if you... I but, think but if dogs are a little bit like humans, if you get, you know, a bit of an upset, upset stomach, yeah. oh, I don't feel like eating today. Exactly. Dogs can go like, like cats never do. Cats generally don't. They keep eating regardless of how sick they are. That's how you know a cat is sick. Yes, in a way. I think they do. They're quite good at, you know, going on to the the bitter end when they're really feeling unwell. But what I would say about cats is if cats are not eating even for a period of more than a, a day or so, it can cause problems. The way that their liver processes food and fat, um, it can all go a bit haywire if they're not eating and Very that can quickly, cause more yeah. problems. Whereas a dog Dogs, is slightly different. A little bit more robust. The way they metabolise food in the liver is a little bit different. But I would still say regardless of, of whether it's a dog or a cat, if we're bright, bouncing, happy, otherwise absolutely fine, try something tempting for dinner tonight. Nothing too fatty, maybe something bland and see how you go but if you have any concerns at all just don't worry yeah, make that call yeah if, don't let it go on alright as always uh, Jane thank you for that have a lovely week and hopefully you won't be too busy uh, <laughs> thank you for joining us that is uh, Jane uh, Pickett who is at the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group that's where I leave you for today my thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing uh, Mark is in for Nick Richards for the afternoon and we're back with you tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock onto the 9 Patricia Messenger Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.